Hey there, Carl here. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about a new podcast and artist community called the Conspirator Collective. Join us as we find, interview, and support young people as artists, connecting their faith to all the deep questions and conspiracies of goodness in the world. Check out episodes and an archive of work from young artists at conspirator.co. The Conspirator Collective is an arts project of Young People's Ministries of the United Methodist Church. Hey, this is Dan Wonderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Reverend Alan Stanton, pastor at Merritt's Chapel United Methodist Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Previously, he served as the Rural Church Fellow at the Institute for Emerging Issues, a nonpartisan public policy think tank at NC State University. Alan joins us today to talk about the opportunities and challenges of preaching and doing ministry in a rural setting. Well, my guest today is Reverend Alan Stanton. He's the pastor at Merritt's Chapel United Methodist Church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Previously, he served as the Rural Church Fellow at the Institute for Emerging Issues. It's a nonpartisan public policy think tank at NC State University. Alan, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, before we begin, we'll let the audience know that uh, you are on the final countdown towards the birth of your first child. By the time this episode comes out, you will welcome that child into your family. But thanks so much for taking the time these last couple days before your life changes for forever. Yeah, I'm excited about being here. I'm excited uh, to have a daughter next week. Well, Monday, so... That's so cool. And that'll, uh, so folks know that'll be around the 3rd of July. So like I said, this episode will come out towards the end of July. So we'll celebrate with you then. But congratulations on all that. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the show is that one of our previous episodes was about doing ministry and preaching in uh, a big city. And so we had Reverend Olu Brown from Atlanta, Georgia on to talk about what it's like to do ministry in that setting. And so I wanted to compliment that episode with one on the rural church and doing ministry in a rural setting. Uh, and so that's the reason that we have you on. Also, you are the son-in-law of one of our previous guests, Bishop Ken Carter. Uh, and I actually asked Bishop Carter, I said, can you identify for me some Someone who's doing rural ministry well and who thinks deeply about it. And you were uh, absolutely the first person he thought of. Uh, and so, uh, Alan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your ministry and its context? Yeah, definitely. Um, I will say it's always fun to have, like, uh, you're a bishop's son-in-law in your, in your bio. <laughs> yeah. that, um, I remember being at, like, a district gathering not too long ago when I first started pastoring this church and the DS. So this is Alan. He's one of our new pastors. And also his father-in-law, I'm like, is nobody, is nobody. Don't say it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, no. <laughs> but he's not a bad one to have, right? Um, yeah. I'll take him. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, eastern North Carolina, which is mostly rural, in a small rural town there. Uh, Nashville, North Carolina is the name of it. Um, a little known fact, it's the first Nashville, the original Nashville. So oh, okay. people think Nashville, Tennessee is the good one. No. Nashville, North Carolina. And it's a, it's a very small town. Uh, when I was born, it was about 2,500 people. Um, and now it's grown up a little bit. Um, and I grew up, you know, working on my great aunt's garden. We would shuck corn and drive the golf cart around with my cousins and pick snap beans and snap them. And that was my childhood. And then I went, grew up and went to Winston-Salem uh, to Wake Forest University. And while I was there, I studied public policy and, and political science. And then I went to Duke Divinity School. And in a conversation about how I was going to pay for Divinity School, someone said to me, um, why don't you consider this fellowship called Thriving Rural Communities? And what Thriving Rural Communities is, it's an initiative from the Duke Endowment 
to find pastors who are willing to serve in a rural community for up to a period of five years or more, and uh, they pay for 100% of your tuition um, and fees while you're in seminary. So mm. I said, sure, that sounds like a good plan, after a little bit of controlling from some other people. Um, and I was accepted into the program and, and said I would serve for five years in a rural church and, and ended up loving it. And after I graduated, I went and served in a partnership um, with Thriving Rural Communities at uh, the Institute for Emerging Issues, that nonpartisan public policy think tank you mentioned, and worked with rural churches all across North Carolina on community engagement and community development, economic development stuff. And finally, I said, I think I really actually want to be in the local church. So I took an appointment here in Marriott Chapel, United Methodist, and it's been a great ride here. Marriott Chapel is a church. We have about 105 active members, and like a lot of rural churches or a lot of churches nowadays, um, they don't all show up at once, so we average right. about 65 to 70 people on a Sunday. We are a very missional church. We have regular mission groups. Like this week, actually, we just fed about 50 kids through a partnership with the food pantry, and we do that every other week during the summer. And we're a little bit weird for a rural church in that we have a Chapel Hill address, and if you know anything about North Carolina, you know that Chapel Hill is not actually a rural area. Right. Um, but we're outside in Chatham County, um, far away from Chapel Hill, but it's, it presents an interesting opportunity for us and a challenge for us because we're actually in a rural area that's transitioning to a suburb. So in about 20 years, I don't think we'll be classified rural anymore, but mm. for right now, we still are. So it's a lot of fun, and I, it's, it's a great congregation. I'm proud of them, and I love serving here. That's great. And I do want to point out, you glossed over one small part of your resume. When you were at Wake Forest, I believe you were the mascot for a while. Is that correct? I was. I was the demon deacon at Wake Forest University all for all four years. <laughs> two, of the, two, two of those years, we actually had good teams. And the other two, um, I don't want to talk about that. So. <laughs> okay. So for you, uh, what takes more courage to stand up and preach in a pulpit or to run around and go crazy in a costume? You know, when you're in a costume, nobody knows who you are. So it's a it's a different experience when you stand in front of a stadium of like 60,000 people and <laughs> no one really cares about you. They care about the person that you're representing. We're in the pulpit. Um, it's you. <laughs> There's yeah. no hiding. Yeah. So when people give you a weird look, it's, it's, they're giving you a weird look. Not the <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, what are some of your philosophies or general approaches to preaching? If you maybe had a mission statement for how you approach the act of preaching, what might it be? I'm going to cheat and do two, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one is um, something my preaching professor told me, or told in class when we were taking intro to preaching. It was about prophetic preaching. And I know prophetic preaching comes up a lot these days. And uh, his comment to us was, being prophetic is simply asking people to live into the implications of the gospel. And I thought that was really beautiful, just asking people to live into what it means, what the gospel really means, and how the gospel is calling them to change their lives. Um, and so that's like actually the root of how I devise sermons is, what does this mean for our lives? Um, and how does this change our lives if we're going to take this seriously? And the second is something a couple of friends and I were talking about one day, and I don't know who said it, but it just kind of came out and we all wrote it down. But we said part of our job as preachers, and one of the biggest jobs as, as preachers that we have in rural communities is helping people find the beauty in the mundane. Mm. And that stuck with me. It hangs on a little note card in my office. So when I'm writing a sermon and I don't really see it, I'm like, what's the beautiful part of the mundane this week? So That's really great. Yeah. And uh, can, can you give us an example of maybe a time recently where you've been a little stuck in the mundane, but were able to find an angle on the beauty? Yeah. So all the pastors I know, and I'm, I'm guilty of it too, we toss around metrics a lot. Like 
how many people do you have doing this or how many people do you have doing that? So I have one confirmant right now, one person in confirmation, hmm. which is not something like people brag about, right? Like I have one person in confirmation. <laughs> we're yeah. a small church. We have that age gap right now and, and we're, we're filling it in, but um, that's just how it shook down. And so we actually meet, me and this person, we meet once a week after Sunday before youth group, after uh, church before youth group, and, and we kind of go through it. And for a while, I was sort of like, man, I only have this one person in confirmation. Like, how lame is that? And about halfway through, I realized, like, we're having really intense, good conversations. And it kind of came to a head one day when Elizabeth, is her name, she told me she could, I could share this story. And she said, why don't you ever go more in depth? and stuff. Like, you just kind of give me the light answer to my questions. And I said, well, you know, confirmation is a basic class, and you're asking really deep questions that it would take, you know, a master's course to get through some of this. And she kind of leaned back in the chair, and she said, do you think I deserve a master's course? And I said, you know, yeah, but like that's not what we're doing here. And I kind of spun it back on her, and I said, you know, why do you want that? You know, why do you want to go that in depth? Most people don't. And she said, well, if I'm going to base my life around this, then I want to know as much about it as possible. Wow. And like, I, you know, I was like, man, that's, that's good stuff. I wish I had a whole church of you. <laughs> I know that's an amazing level of maturity for a student. Yeah. And I think one of the gifts in, in being in a small church is that you actually get to see that a lot where there's kind of one-on-one conversations all of a sudden say something and you're like, Oh, no, like God's actually doing something here. And I missed it. Like, Silly me. Yeah, yeah. That's a great story. And and that really flips it on its head. You go from feeling like, man, I, I'm just this pastor that only has one confirmand to, wow, I have this amazing opportunity to pour into this student who very clearly the seeds are being planted and the roots are growing. And, and then it can be an exponential act of ministry through the people that she impacts. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm always impressed by my youth in the church. This is kind of tangential, but we have this thing in the North Carolina Conference called Pilgrimage. And this year there was a kind of a big political stir after um, a couple of racist and xenophobic um, remarks were made to some students and, and then some counter remarks were made. And so it turned into this big thing. And, and as we're debriefing it, one of my parents said to one of the youth, you know, I'm sorry, you know, you're a senior. This is the last year you have at Pilgrimage. I'm sorry, like this was your experience. That it wasn't like just fun and, and energetic like it normally is. And so Pilgrimage is this big youth rally of like, 5,000 youth from across the state come and, and celebrate. And so she was really upset that, like, for her son's last year, that it wasn't more fun. And, and he just kind of said, leaned back against the wall, and he said, you know, Mom, um, this is the real world, and, and Christians, our job is to live in the real world, so we have to figure out how to do this. And I was just, like, blown away by the maturity, you know, and yeah. that it takes to, to have that realization. Like, I don't even have that realization sometimes, yeah. you know? It was my job. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've shared a little bit about your history with and connection to the rural church and the communities that they serve. But is there is there anything else from uh, your time at the Public Policy Institute or your time as the rural church fellow that you feel really kind of, uh, or even from your time growing up in, in a rural church? Is is there any is there any is there any part of those experiences or any stories you might want to share that really captures for you the picture of what the rural church can be? Well, I think. The thing I, I kind of learned, particularly when I was at NC State, was that there's no such thing as like a typical rural church. Um, and so, like at the beginning, I think when I was talking about my church, I said we're not a typical rural church. And all of my, with the exception of one, all of my field ed placements, my internships have been in rural churches. And I grew up in the rural church, and I preached in a lot of different rural churches. And each rural community is very different. 
Mm. And so, you know, we kind of paint this picture sometimes, I think, of a, like in very nostalgic terms, like rural with sweeping farmlands and everybody's <laughs> right, one with right. God and one with nature and there's an agrarian community, like this Wendellberry-esque kind of painting. And, you know, and the reality is, is that it's not really true. And so, you know, to go to some rural counties and not, that might be the case. And that was, you know, what I grew up in. And, but you go to other places and manufacturing is, is the main economic driver and people are worried about what it means to be losing those manufacturing jobs or, um, you go to another place and it's actually a really well built up economy full of retirees who have come in to take advantage of, I'm thinking of like a, this community I served in the mountains of North Carolina where the entire community was, was, uh, retirees and wealthy retirees who were coming to live by this beautiful lake nestled in the valley between mountains. And it's a very different picture of what rural looks like from place to place. So there's a quote that we toss around, um, in community development. And it's, uh, if you've seen one rural County, you've seen one rural County. Um, (laughs) So we, we try to, I guess the the big thing for me is to say like, there's just a diversity of what rural means and every rural community is different and every rural community has its own strengths and its own challenges. The big lesson I always take away is not to fall into a flattening of that, to, to see all of it in a kind of three dimensional reality. That's that's really great, and I, and I like that you uh, brought up the word diversity in our conversation with Reverend Olu Brown about ministry in Atlanta. He talked about the diversity of Atlanta and how uh, the movie industry right now is booming in Atlanta, and so he could have a homeless person sitting next to someone working on the next Marvel movie in his sanctuary. And so it's really interesting to hear the word diversity applied to rural communities because that's oftentimes the opposite of what we imagine uh, when we think about rural communities. And, and I I wanted to ask you, there is a diversity between rural communities. Do you also feel that there is a diversity within rural communities, or is it still a, a fair stereotype or a, a fair analysis that, that rural communities are fairly homogeneous within the bounds of their own community? I, I think it can be, um, and I think that's something a lot of pastors I know try to try to struggle with, and, and they, they wrestle with that. So my church, for instance, and depending on what you're measuring in diversity, right? Like sure. if you're talking about economic diversity— I think there's a lot of that. So my church, you know, I have uh, a, a retired professor of microbiology from the University of Maryland. I have a scientist who does uh, research for the NIH and on uh, cancer in the liver. And they sit next to people who are barely making ends meet or people who are out of a job. Or So it's a there's that kind of diversity. And in some rural communities, it's not that clear-cut. I know in, you know, one church I served, the the bigger church, the bigger Methodist church in town was sort of like the eclectic, egalitarian rural church, and the one down the road was where all the people who were from the community went to, and very different populations and, and um, very different worldviews, how they see the world, and, and from particularly from their economic vantage point. I, and I think racially is something we definitely still struggle with, and I see that most often in rural communities. And I, I see it in urban areas too, but oh, absolutely. It's, I yeah. think it's a little more apparent sometimes in our rural communities. Well, and I'm thinking like there's this great missionary Baptist church, an African-American church in a rural community in Edgecombe County, North Carolina. There's this guy named Richard Joyner there. He's a pastor and he's been featured on like CNN. He's a CNN hometown hero. And mm-hmm. he does this huge community garden. And whenever I talk to him, his main complaint is that like he can't get the white churches in town to work with him. Mm. And here's this, you know, this, church that has a nationally recognized ministry uh, that's really, you know, reshaped that community. But for whatever reason, the, the 
area white churches, historically white churches just don't kind of want to be a part of it. So, and there's no really, I mean, there's, you have to kind of name it. There's no getting around that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I want to say too, like this is one of the areas where I think rural churches have a place to play. And what I've really been heartened by is the pastors who I work with um, have kind of named this and said, this is something that we in the church, particularly, we can fix this. Like we can be doing the work of being more diverse. And and I see a lot of my rural colleagues who are really involved in partnering with historically African-American churches and, um, you know, doing pulpit swaps and choir swaps and, and joint worship services. And those are really big things in those communities. Sometimes the first time that's ever happened. So um, there's a lot of really great work being done in that. Well, asking you to do what you're built not to do, to sort of flatten out rural ministry and, and to sort of speak generally, knowing that, that you can't speak 100% accurately when you generalize. Are there any uh, unique opportunities or challenges specifically to rural ministry that you might find in the majority of rural communities? So I'd say one of the benefits is that um, we're very adaptable. Like, we don't have very formal committee structures or formal decide, like decision-making bodies. So I, I joke that, like, my, tr- my chairman of the trustees will come by my office and he'll have like a couple other people and that'll be our trustee meeting as like an impromptu <laughs> <Yeah>. coffee <laughs> where they'll decide, you know, to retrofit all the lights in the, in the building. And I'm like, oh, okay, that, that sounds good. Um, cool. But it also means like when we decide that we need to do something, like the people are already committed to it. And yeah. once we make the decision, we don't have to go through like oodles of bureaucracy in the church to do anything. And so it means that we can do some really cool stuff really quickly. And I think that's a great benefit. There is a challenge with that, which is sometimes that we tend to recognize that some, like we were bigger in my church in the past than we are today. So we kind of hit like a high point in the early 2000s. And for whatever reason, we've kind of struggled since then. And and we're on the rebound now and and growing again. Um, But one of the conversations that I hear a lot of is, you know, like when so-and-so's kids were in school, we were, this is a lot bigger or like, this is how we've been doing it since then, and it's worked then, so it'll work again. And mm. this kind of like almost stuck in the past, hard to let go of some of the stuff that, that we've had for a long time. I instituted something called the license rule. Um, I'm some 27. So the rule is that if we're talking about trying something new or we're trying um, something that something that we all kind of recognize isn't working like we want it to, the license rule is if, if you say something is recent, it's not recent if I didn't have my license at that time, like <laughs> me personally. Um, yeah. So basically anything before 2005 is not considered recent. And, and that's been kind of effective in, in clearing out. Like, so when people say, well, you know, when so-and-so was a kid, you know, we had 30 people at this and now we only have 15. I'm like, well, they're old enough to my parent now. So yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to invoke the license rule here. <laughs> like. <laughs> Well, uh, when we flip toward the experience of being the pastor uh, in that setting, uh, when I look at my own experience, I served for a few years in a rural church, uh, but I grew up in the suburbs of Orlando, Florida, and then, of course, went to college and then went to seminary. And so I had a lot of fish out of water moments because my personal experiences and perspectives were so different from some of the members of the rural community. Uh, I also have friends in ministry who are are pastoring in rural churches, and that's their first time ever in a rural community. I'm sure we have listeners who are maybe struggling with that feeling right now. Do you have any w- words of encouragement or advice for folks that are in or will soon be in rural church ministry and maybe are struggling with feeling a disconnect? 
Can I can I ask what your fish out of water, like one of your fish out of water experiences is? I'll tell you one of mine if you tell me one of yours. Well, you know, I was preaching a sermon on one of the many, many agricultural parables uh, in the Bible, Mm -hmm. and I was describing how uh, the water would interact with the soil and all this stuff, and and it was great, and everyone kind of smiled and nodded, and then on the way out the door, one of the farmers was just like, you know, that's not how it works, right? (laughs) You know, it's like one of those where all my book reading and all my, you know, commentaries, and I was excited because I was going to use this agricultural metaphor to really connect the Bible to their day-to-day experience. And, and I completely blew it. So <laughs> something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, there was all, there were also some some um, d- divisions on social issues, political issues, things like that. But I, I think people expect those. They're not easy, but I think people expect those. But it was one of those moments where I was sure that here I was, even though I grew up in the suburbs, I'd be able to speak their language, and I completely blew it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, that's that's awesome. You kind of have to learn how to be yourself in those moments, and and. So I, when I went to a rural, one of my rural first churches, and I I go into the church, and I I was told it's very casual, right? And this is a little bit different, but I wore so I wore khakis and like a button down um, polo shirt, and uh, I got there, and they were like, "We gotta get the starch out of you." And I was an intern, and I'm thinking <laughs> like, "You told me to be casual, like this is this isn't formal." And so the next week, I wore like a polo shirt, like a short sleeve polo shirt, and khakis, and like, "Man, why are you so formal?" And in the office, you know, they would tease me because I would show up in jeans and a polo shirt. And finally, I was like shorts and a polo shirt, berries. And the whole summer, they kept going like, you're so formal. Why are you so formal? And finally, it dawned on me, like, I'm at the beach, right? They expect me to show up in like a tank top, shorts and a flip-flops. <laughs> and, you know, like, so I finally started wearing like t-shirts, shorts and a flip-flops. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, that, now you're a pastor. That's awesome. That's awesome. That was my dress code when I worked in college campus ministry was flip-flops. Uh, unfortunately, I went through a cargo short phase, but, uh, you know, flip-flops and cargo shorts and a t-shirt. It was great. It happens to the best of us. happens yeah. to the best of us. <laughs> and you're in Florida, so, like, you get away with that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think one of the things that my my congregations and the ones I've preached in, like, the congregation knows that you're not from the same area. They know that you come from a different background. They know that you have this stuff. And so I think there's something to be said about honesty in that moment. Say like, I'm not, I'm not a farmer. I don't know this experience. You do. Like, why don't you tell me about that? And learning how to say like, you know, that's not me. So I get a lot of my parishioners in in my church, they, they like to hunt and fish and and I have never hunted or fit. Like I fished when I was seven. So I I don't pretend. Yeah. And they, they respect that. And so it, it means that I can learn something from them. And I think, in rural communities, a lot of what it is is learning the story of the place. So in my area, you know, we have a lake here, Jordan Lake, and it was built in the 80s. And so the people that live here have lived here well before that lake. And so the first six months of me being here, we really was just listening to those stories about what this area is like, kind of learning the place itself, learning the stories of the people here. Um, and then finding out how my story might intersect with those and how their stories can teach me and using that to... to fill out my preaching and, and my pastoral ministry and making sure that I, I knew myself well enough to know what was me and, and what was going to be fake. So yeah. Yeah. I, I try really hard not to like put on any sort of false narrative about myself or adopt some like really thick Southern accent or something, you know, <laughs> I, they yeah. can see through that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you've written a couple pieces and, and we'll link to them in the show notes about the role that the church uh, specifically plays and can play in rural communities. Can you talk about the potential the church has to be a vital institution and a centerpiece in these communities? Yeah. There's a conversation that 
keeps coming up about evangelism in rural communities. And when we talk about evangelism, a lot of times we talk about church growth. And the question I always have is, what does it mean to be an evangelical church? What does it mean to practice evangelism in a place that actually might be declining? So in North Carolina, a lot of our rural communities are in decline, population-wise and economically. And so for me, part of what it means to be a church in those areas is rethinking what it means to share the good news. And the leadership I think rural churches have is the ability to still preach hope in the midst of when everyone else is pessimistic. Like, you can still preach hope, because our our entire faith is rooted on preaching life even when there's death, in spite of death. Mm. I mean, we talk about, like, we get up every Easter morning, and we talk about the resurrection, right? And, like, three days ago, Jesus died, and we're saying, no, no, there's still life. Rural churches are one of the few places where people in the community can gather each week and, and like in my church, you know, I said we have professors, we have teachers, we have nurses and, and business leaders and small business owners. And there's really no other place where you have that audience once a week. And for us as a pastor, part of what I think our, our job is, and this goes back to seeing the beauty in the mundane, is to say, if we have all these people here who are committed to each other, committed to this community, how can we use this to spread hope? How can we use this to spread joy? And what can we do with this to build our community um, and that's evangelism, that's leadership in the community. So I, I am committed to seeing the rural church be a, a leader in these places where, where people have not felt hope in a long time. And the other aspect of this is, you know, you drive through a rural community and you see, you'll see a rural church every five feet, you know, in about a 10 foot radius, you'll have a thousand churches and, yeah. um, they're all kind of small sometimes, or, you know, but if if those churches work together, and what I've what I've really been happy about and pleased with is, is seeing how these churches are starting to form networks in these rural areas, and when they come together, uh, it can totally reshape the face of the community. I mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast, like this person in uh, Eastern North Carolina, Richard Joyner is his name, and his rural church they do a community garden, which turned into this huge thing that gets rural churches from all over the eastern part of the state, um, and, and they partner with urban churches and. In this community of 300 people, the uh, graduation rate has risen by like something like 90%. Wow. Where everybody that's participating in this program is going to um, college or to a four-year, I mean, to four-year or two-year school uh, or into the military. And a lot of times, they're the first kids in their family to graduate from high school. And the emergency room visit rate has dropped by like 50, the return rate has dropped by something like 50%. And if you can see it in one of those communities, you can see it in all these different places. And I mean, there are examples all over the rural churches that I've worked in where, where like, yeah, a summer tutoring program. So this is a that um, in an urban area uh, over the summer, there's more access to programs like summer camps and, and you know, extended learning, those kind of opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so in an urban area, you generally lose about um, between kindergarten and fifth grade over the summers collectively use about a grade level, right, um, combined because you kind of forget stuff. In rural areas, it's about three grade levels um, that you lose. And I could be off on the stats, but it's, it's pretty severe. And what we found is that a simple literacy camp, like a reading program in a church in the summer, where kids come once a week and read for 20 minutes a day and get time to play together and be together, um, can have huge, enormous impacts on the rest of these kids' lives. Um, and so we see those small programs happening all over these rural churches, and it may not feel like it now, but they're actually like substantially changing the face of those communities and the face of our state and the face of our world. So those are small ripple effects, but 
they can do amazing things. Yeah. And they don't take a lot of resources. They don't take a lot of time. Um, they just take passion and dedication, and that's what rural churches have. Yeah, that's really great. Well, we have a set of questions that we like to ask all of our guests, and the first one you can answer either or both. Do you have a favorite or most challenging preaching experience? I think my most challenging preaching experience is whenever when I first got here, I had to preach a funeral for someone I had never met before, and the place was packed. And so having to to preach that, that, that was probably the most challenging moment of my life. And anytime there's like a national tragedy or something, kind of walk into the pulpit and say something that's not stupid, um, that's true about God, that offers some hope and also offers a a word sometimes that we might not want to hear, those are challenging moments. Yeah. My favorite preaching experience was actually a couple weeks ago at graduation Sunday on Pentecost. So I got to, I wrote a letter to our our graduating seniors about Pentecost and, and what it means to be. Uh, a Christian in this world and going out into the future. So that was that was probably my favorite. Oh, that's really cool. Well, do you have a preference? Do you uh, prefer preaching at Christmas Eve or Easter? So this is actually the first year I got to preach at Easter. Our church always does our Easter cantata on Easter Sunday. So I'm going to say Christmas Eve because I always get to preach Christmas Eve. That's cool. And also Christmas Eve is special in our congregation because we have a lot of large families in our church, and, and one of them is uh, a group of people who lost a, an a, an adult son um, mm. about five years ago, six years ago now. And so Christmas Eve is always a special time for me to to get to preach something um, with this family and this congregation who is mourning this person as we sit there um, together and try to find hope in that. So yeah, it's a beautiful experience for me. Well, who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life and why? I have three that I'm going to name. Um, so the first is a, is a kind of a big name, Luke Powery. He's the dean of Duke Chapel, and I took one of his preaching courses on preaching lament, and he taught me that you have to have lament to have hope, and so uh, learning how to name that has been impactful. And then there are two preachers that I think everybody should listen to, and they're not famous. They should be. One is this guy named Jeremy Troxler. He's a preacher at Spruce Pine United Methodist Church. If you just Google Spruce Pine United Methodist Church, you can hear his sermons. And David Reeves is in Cullowee United Methodist Church in uh, Cullowee, North Carolina, which is actually a college town. And I love both of them. They're very different preachers, but they the way they use their stories and the way they are part of the community um, is just beautiful. David will he'll only tell a story in the sermon, and by the end of it, your entire world has changed. Wow. So everybody should go check those people out. Awesome. Well, do you have any books, uh, podcasts, or other resources that you might recommend to our listeners? One of the books I would recommend is Preaching as Local Theology and Folk Art. Uh, it's by Lenora Tubbs Tisdale. She's a professor at Yale, I believe. But she looks at preaching as, um, like the title says, as folk art, um, and particularly in oral traditions. And so I, it's, it was a really impactful book for me. And whenever I have a field student or an intern come in, I make them read it before they preach their first sermon. So I think that's a, it's a really great book. Um, and also, I mentioned Luke Powery. His book, um, Dim Dry Bones, is a really great book for people who are trying to figure out how do you preach faithfully in the midst of lament or in the midst of hard times. And both of those books have been super impactful. That's great. And if there are any listeners out there who want to get in touch and say hi, or if they want to ask questions or just follow your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, so Twitter, I'm always available on Twitter. I'm at A.T. Stanton. Or if you go to our church website, www.marriagechapel.org. You can find my email address and just shoot me an email, so any of those places. 
Well, Alan, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll be praying for you and your wife as you all celebrate the birth of your first child. And uh, we really appreciate all of the wisdom you've shared with us today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.